0: Uh, Now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I am very honoured to introduce this morning's guests, all very important Canadians and experts on the international investing climate. So along with this morning's breakfast, we will be serving up uh, some fascinating perspectives from representatives of three of this country's leading pension funds and investment companies. I know they have a lot to say and a lot of terrific advice to share, So, please let me introduce each of them briefly before turning over the microphone to our moderator, Danny Asaf. Ontario Teachers Pension Plan CEO Jim Leach oversees the management and administration of pensions for 300,000 people. Teachers is also considered one of the world's leading private equity investors. Mr. Leach has been with the company for 12 years and in the role as president and CEO since 2007. Um, obviously a wonderful year because it was also in 2007 that Michael Nebrega took on his role as President and CEO of OMERS. Previously, he was their Chief Investment Officer. Mr. Nebrega is a chartered accountant, a former president of a merchant bank, and a partner at an international accounting firm. And rounding out our trio is Mark Wiseman, who has held the role of President and CEO at the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board since July 2012. Mr. Wiseman has held progressively senior roles at CPPIB, including Senior Vice President and Executive Vice President. Now, if any of you in the live audience would like to ask a question of our panel, I would like to encourage you to write it on the Q&A cards that you'll see in the middle of your table. Um, Please write it there, hold it up, and a volunteer will come and collect it and bring it to the stage. So without further ado, gentlemen, the Canadian Club stage is yours. Thank you.
1: Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, on, a, on, a Monday, on a Tuesday morning after a holiday, and I have to say, one of the reasons we had to have this event today is because these gentlemen and their institutions represent so much of the Canadian economy that we had to have it either on a holiday or for sure before the markets opened. So, one of my key jobs today is to make sure that uh, these gentlemen are back at their desks by 9 o'clock, or I think Mark Carney is going to be calling up and uh, giving us all uh, a lecture. <laughs> So, I have my, myself, I have three very important roles today. I've got to read those questions that I've been given very slowly. Secondly, I've got to make sure that these guys get back to work by 9 o'clock. And thirdly, if God forbid anyone tries to do them any harm, I'm supposed to take the bullet. Somebody figured the lawyer is the most expendable one of the group. <laughs> So on that note, uh, this morning, we wanted, it's our, it's our privilege and honor to have these three uh, distinguished gentlemen with us and what they represent to Canadians and all of us, and to get a chance to hear about three basic themes that we're all very interested in, which is essentially what they're doing internationally as leaders and Canadians out front in the global marketplace. Secondly, what's motivating them to do these things. And thirdly, maybe we're able to get a little bit of, a, of, of some lessons and some some insight into things that can help us within our own business. So on that note, I think it would be a good time to get started. And uh, and, uh, good morning, gentlemen, again. Good morning. So to begin with, uh, on our initial theme of what are you doing internationally, uh, Jim, you announced the opening of a Hong Kong office this year. And we're curious as to what prompted you to do that now. And is this part of a larger strategy to open more international offices globally?
2: I won't comment on whether there's a broader strategy for more offices, but just comment on on Hong Kong itself. Um, Our first expansion uh, away from Young and Finch uh, was to London and then to New York and now uh, we're opening in Hong Kong. I think we're actually the, uh, uh, we're following these guys uh, (laughs) uh, uh, that they opened somewhat earlier. I mean, the fact of the matter is that we are moving from a G20 world to a G2 world, um, and that's China and the United States. Uh, world trade f- uh, flows are uh, going to explode in Asia. I think uh, by far the vast majority of world trade flows in the next decade, two decades, will be in the Asia area. Um, You've got to go where the growth is, and that's why we're placing uh, an office there to have uh, feet on the street uh, so we can participate in that uh, in that growth.
1: And do you see that just uh, to follow on to that? And Southeast Asia, I mean, Hong Kong you've got here, but Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Indonesia, are those places you've been you've been thinking about or looking at? And we've
2: made some investments in in uh, some of those countries. Um, you know, everybody focused when they were talking about emerging markets uh, on the BRIC countries, mm-hmm. uh, so defined by Goldman Sachs uh, decades ago. Um, well, really, there's now the the, the more uh, up-to-date lexicon is the N11, the next mm-hmm. 11, mm-hmm. Uh, and that does include Indonesia, Philippines, Bangladesh, all sorts of countries. North,
1: North that uh, Korea. North, <laughs> North Korea, exactly. It'll be number 12. Um, <laughs> actually on the but,
2: uh, you know, that's, again, it's uh, you've got to go, you've got to be in the mainstream right. of where activity is, and with uh, world trade flows uh, being in that part of the world, we got to be there. Great. Thank you.
1: Michael, um, in addition to your many international investments, last year you had the first partner sign up for a $2.5 billion commitment on your global strategic investment alliance. How is that alliance initiative related to your overall international strategy, and why is this kind of alliance something that's uh, so strategic and helpful in your mind?
3: well um first of all let me um, let me say um, we are both doing the same things, um, all three of us number one uh, we 're trying to diversify our portfolio and secondly we 're trying to chase returns basically in these markets in you know, just an elaboration to to to, uh, to Jim there in terms of uh, in terms of what we 've done, um, we are a small fund compared to both Jim and to uh, and to mark and we 're small actually in the world because uh, when you look at the Japanese uh, investment fund, it's 1.4 trillion dollars. So we're small. So we have to be very strategic. And one of the areas to be strategic is we have to. We recognize that the world is changing, that there are, um, the the trade patterns are 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 being different, because uh, in the next uh, eight years from now, between 20 now between now and 2020 the world gdp will grow from 75 trillion to 100 trillion mm-hmm. and 70% of that is going to come from uh, from uh, emerging countries secondly is that the sovereign wealth funds and the soes which are the state owned enterprises sort of represent a, a, more investment in those countries than the whole of imf and and uh, and uh, and, uh, and the world bank so the question that we have for ourselves being a strong being a, being a, uh, a minor player in this game is we can either decide to compete with them or partner with them. Mm -hmm. And our way to partner with them is to form a program that we can have actually access to them. And that's why we formed the GSIA, which is the Global Strategic Investment Alliance. Uh, we uh, not only for the capital formation, but obviously to get into that value-add investment trade patterns that will occur
1: Mm
3: -hmm. as the the GDP of the world grows to the extent we expect it to grow by 2020.
1: And, Michael, on that front, just as a quick follow-up, are you seeing the cost of some of these investments rising uh, that you really, you really, the math requires you to have these kinds of partners as well?
3: Well, well, I think that, uh, no, I, I don't see the cost rise. In, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, cost rise because interest rates are low and you, mm-hmm. get, you get low interest rates, you get, you get an asset bubble, bubble in these investments. I don't think, I, I think we, we moved in because we want to get in that investment value chain. Mm-hmm and we wanna have partners where we can not afford to be Mm -hmm. that would bring us those opportunities that we can partner
1: with them. So that pipeline is important. Um, Mark, last year you made a variety of international investments across several sectors, which I found very interesting. Logistics in Brazil, shopping centers in Sweden, Rio and Australia, and toll roads in Chile. What explains such a diverse international investment strategy and how does that inform your international uh, strategic vision?
4: Well, I think for us it's a very deliberate strategy. So it's not just you're not just watching a series of random acts uh, <laughs> taking place. Um, and what we've done is built capabilities uh, first with our office in Hong Kong, which we opened in 2008. Uh, we also have an office in London. Between those two offices, we now have uh, over 80 employees, uh, about half in about half in each of those two uh, two locations. I think it's fair to say you'll see us uh, open. Uh, Not a lot, but uh, other offices uh, over time as we want to access the growth economies uh, around the world. And and the way that we've gone about it is is very simple. We've we've built capabilities. We've built domestic and local partnerships uh, in those regions. It's fair to say uh, we're not an operator of assets. So for us to go and, um, you know, let's say buy a toll road in Chile uh, without a local operating partner would be folly. Um, So our model, and it's not dissimilar to to, to what uh, uh, Michael or Jim are pursuing uh, with OMERS and and teachers, uh, but our our model is to find the best partners locally. That means we have to have people in the region uh, to build those partnerships, to create those linkages, to manage uh, and govern those investments. Um, And uh, what we're seeing, I think, most recently is we're starting to see the payback of what's been five or six years of slowly developing the right type of local relationships. Mm -hmm. And so when you see a number of investments coming on stream in diverse geographies, that's not just happening Mm -hmm. uh, randomly. It's really the result of a lot of work and effort that we as an organization have been doing over time. The general strategy for Mm -hmm. CPPIB overall is diversification. And that just makes good investment sense. Uh, And in fact, uh, in 2005, when I joined CPPIB, um, we had over 70% of our assets invested in Canada. At the time, the foreign property rule had just been uh, had just been eliminated, everybody remembers, mm-hmm. uh, remembers that. Today, less than 40% of our assets uh, are invested in Canada. And we just think that that is wise portfolio uh, management. Diversify by asset class uh, and diversify by geography but do that in a very disciplined and systematic way.
1: And when you say discipline just when I look at this list in terms of geography, do you take uh, every five years or periodically a map of the world and think, well, opportunistically anywhere, but in particular we're looking at these this list of priority places?
4: I suspect we need to use the word opportunistically, of so my <laughs> colleagues smiled in the back table there. Because One of the, one of the things I like to say is that um, opportunistic is not a strategy. Um, so we don't look at things opportunistically. It's actually very deliberate. And we started in, in 2007 with a, a view that our first focus uh, in terms of, of diversifying geographically would be North Asia. China, uh, Korea, mm-hmm. uh, Taiwan. Why? Uh, you know, it wasn't magic, it was, or some deep insight, it's because that's the largest uh, growing market in the world. So we started there. Our first office outside of Canada wasn't London, wasn't New York, it was Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, and we built our capabilities on the ground, built local partnerships, uh, and then it's fair to say that we've started to expand from there. Currently, uh, we're putting a lot of focus, not, not taking anything away from what we're doing in Asia, but putting a lot of focus on, uh, on Latin America, um, and that's why you're seeing, I think, an increasing amount of investment activity in, in that region. That's
1: great. Thank you. So now on to our, and start to transition a little bit into our, into our little theme, to delve a little more specifically in what is, what is driving the international strategies. And uh, I'd like to start with, uh, with you, Michael. Um, you reconfigured OMERS in ways to create uh, a more formal international platform, such as with the establishment of OMERS worldwide and that brand. Why was that particular exercise important? And was it difficult to commit resources for the future, uh, you know, during some of these challenging times we've seen?
3: Well, um, number one, um, we have, as Jim and the guy and Mark indicated, we have offices in London and New York. So we have about 60 professionals there. And uh, let me let me tell you some of the some of the advantages that we have found in, in, in those markets, we have, we have found incredible talent. I mean, we found talent that uh, we couldn't get in Canada, mm-hmm. basically, with the multi-language skills. We've also found a very deep uh, bond market for, for, uh, for our investments, uh, as Jim knows. And uh, lastly, we have, uh, we have found some very profitable investments, mm-hmm. Okay, uh, for, for certainly. So uh, in reaching out for resources, we have not reached out to Canadians. Mm -hmm. We reached out to our London office is more a European office than a London office because the language skills we have, the different uh, people that we have in the organization. So we haven't been strapped for those resources. Secondly, what we do is we have um, basically four core platforms, investment platforms, real estate, infrastructure, private equity, and capital markets. And uh, we make sure that they have a mandate Mm -hmm. and they have a return to the mothership, which is OMERS. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, and uh, in doing the the novel things, which is doing the reaching out to international partners and uh, opening the footprint uh, globally, uh, we have set aside a small small adjunct group mm-hmm. that is called the Strategic Investments Group that actually go out there and and do things that uh, is not mandated within the core investment platforms. Mm-hmm. It's like you, Danny. Mm-hmm. Um, Les says you have 10,000 10, hours to do in this year, and, I, uh, and, and Les asks you, ask you to go and do something that has hours in 2019. <laughs> Understand? It's very, very hard to do, so right. we set up a, a little uh, separate group that uh, goes out and do, does the innovation, the things that we like to do uh, on, a, on, a, on a bigger
1: scale. That's interesting to give them that sort of uh, leeway to uh, innovate. Uh, Mark, when we look at, uh, at your plan's contributions, it appears that you know, they, will, they will exceed uh, your payout, your benefits, until 2021. So it looks like, uh, compared to the others, time is a little bit on your side, and you don't need to, to chase, you know, quote-unquote, extra returns or catch-up in terms of uh, to fill those returns gaps. And how does that impact your international strategy? Well, I,
4: I think the one thing, we will have net inflows for the next, you know, eight to ten years, mm-hmm. uh, which is a big advantage for us because mm-hmm. that certainty of assets um, really allows CPPIB to invest for the long term. Um, and so even our international strategy, it's it's really about, and I I, I I use this analogy. It works in Canada. I found out it doesn't work so well when you talk in Brazil. Uh, But it's it's the classic Wayne Gretzky analogy. um, We all love those, yeah. uh, And and so, um, and and it's really, as an organization, trying to go where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. And that certainty of assets, the net inflows, allows us to take a long-term view. And that long-term view means that we can uh, be assured that we can go and build those capabilities, in the markets that are gonna be important uh, in the global economy for, for for years to come. And the way I describe it, um, we know that the world is going from A to B. We don't know the path that it's gonna to take to get there. And there will undoubtedly be a lot of volatility uh, in the interim. We can ignore that volatility. And we can keep our eyes fixed on, on the outcome and really be there for a long time. And by the way, that's very attractive um, it's a very attractive type of capital uh, when you're investing uh, in, in foreign countries because they don't want the hot money. Right. They don't want uh, an investor who's going to uh, come in and leave as soon as things get a little bit tough. Um, and our view, um, and, and to, to borrow a phrase from uh, from Jim O'Neill at, at, at Goldman Sachs, is when we enter a market, we burn the boats. Uh, we, <laughs> our view is that we're going to arrive, we're going to invest in that market for the long term, um, and we're not going to leave. Um, and so we've made a strategic decision. It's a long-term decision. Our capital uh, is long-term, and we can really think differently mm-hmm. um, because of that certainty of assets mm-hmm. um, than an investor that requires uh, near-term, um, near-term liquidity. Uh, and again, that, that really, I, I think, sets CPPIB uh, apart. It also means that a larger proportion today, around 40% of our assets are illiquid. Um, again, we don't need the near-term liquidity, right. so it allows us to invest in private real estate, infrastructure, right. private equity, and private debt um, to a proportion that would be larger than most, certainly most individual investors and most institutional investors could, could bear.
1: Fascinating. You're getting to implement all of the things that we've read are the prudent ways to do it, and you have the, uh, the, the plan and the, the vision to do that. That's, you, that. Your question has a, has a subtlety in there yes.
2: that, um, that may uh, be lost on, on, on people. Um, you know, we're a very mature plan and a maturing plan. Um, We have one of the largest payrolls in Canada, just under $5 billion a year that we pay out in pensions, and we receive about um, $2.1 billion in each year, which which means (laughs) that we're, uh, you know, we're behind the eight ball on the 1st of January every year, Um, which is different than, I think, Michael, you're, you're basically even, Right inflows and outflows, and, and Mark, has, as you said, that right. um, has inflows. And it doesn't necessarily... Well, what it changes in your investment outlook and, 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 and philosophy and strategy is you've got to be much more concerned about and much more focused on your liabilities. So we don't consider ourselves an asset manager right. uh, who's trying to get the best top line on, uh, on asset returns, notwithstanding the fact that we have been able to get the best top line. <laughs> in asset returns. Um, but we are focused yes. very clearly on the liability side, too, and making sure that you don't get too mismatched. Right. So one of the biggest drivers of our investment um, strategy going forward um, is understanding those liabilities and the way they move and trying to match them as much as possible. Uh, so it's just a, it's a subtlety we're not concerned about liquidity because all of us are in it for the long term, mm-hmm. et cetera, but we've got to keep an extra eye out on those liabilities.
1: Well, that's one thing to point out, and, I, and I've noted, noted here that you, your team has won awards for the returns it's done and, and, and accomplished, and really it's a matter of the demographics of your group that you find yourself in such a deficit. But, does, but Jim, does that... wow well, i correct. Correctly. Two weeks ago, that deficit was cured. Fantastic. But does that that demographic structural issue, does that that weigh on you in any way looking ahead when you're trying to think about where you're going to invest or how you're going to invest or you just keep the path straight? Well, it
2: weighs on us on how we run this pension plan. Mm -hmm. Again, we're a pension plan, not an asset manager. So we have to manage the liabilities as much as we manage the assets. So I spend a lot of time with our two sponsors um, working on plan design. Changes and possibilities. Two weeks ago, uh, we made uh, or they made uh, changes such as uh, eliminating uh, inflation protection going forward altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes a huge difference mm-hmm. on how you can then manage the plan because by taking that, by by giving that flexibility to the plan, we can now afford to take a little more risk. Mm-hmm. Prior yeah. to that, we didn't have the flexibility to, to take as much risk. So our asset mix would have just over well, about 45% in equities, which is probably lower mm-hmm. um, than my two colleagues up here, simply because we could not afford to put that risk onto the young and future teachers uh, of this province. Now, with this flexibility, we can get a little more aggressive. Mm-hmm. That's
1: very interesting.
3: You know, Jim, is right because, Please. Uh, Jim is right because we have the same problem
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, in uh, our contributions. I'm sure that he and I spent at least... 40 of our time on the liability side of the balance sheet, right. and that's an issue that we both face. Uh, because, uh, you know, a pension fund is a funny bird. Uh, it, uh, uh, when you make a loss, which is a loss below our discount rate, uh, anything you can make uh, in Jim's situation, I suspect, Jim, you have to make uh, $5 billion before you make a profit. <laughs> Basically, that's what funds the future obligations for, the, for, those, for that year. So, uh, And the problem is if you have a loss, which is anything below $5 billion, it can, it's like a mortgage. You have to compound your discount rate and carry it forward. It enters into your valuation. So not, we are very different from a bank where a bank can make $4 billion loss and make a $4 billion next year and <laughs> fills up the hole. We don't do that. That $4 billion is carried forward as actually a mortgage, which we have to fund at a discount rate. Our interest carried discount rate. So we both have the liability side, and to some extent, uh, Jim is right, our our investment strategy is driven by our liabilities.
4: Right. The one thing about the CPPIB, of course, that I think uh, Jim mentioned is we're we're obviously different. We're we're a pension plan as well, ultimately. We have Mm -hmm. to fund uh, liabilities. It's just that those liabilities are very uh, Mm long-dated, and that's really what, what sets us apart. I mean, some of those liabilities are for... Uh, individuals who haven't even entered the workforce yet. Right. In fact, some of those liabilities are for individuals who haven't been born yet, um, <laughs> in all honesty. So, so as we're, because we're, the national, we're managing the assets on behalf of the National Pension Plan, uh, which is a multi-generational plan in, in nature, uh, the whole structure is, is, uh, is somewhat different. But it's not that we don't have to think about our liabilities. Right. Because they're long-dated, that means we can make a different set of choices uh, than a traditional closed-group plan like OMER's or, or, uh, or teacher's uh, is. One of the things, though, that um, is difficult is people always want to compare uh, these plans to one another. And at the end of the day, <laughs> which at the end of the day is foolish yes. because it's, it's apples and oranges and grapefruits. Right. Um, and it leads to different, different uh, portfolio decisions. It leads to different policy decisions. Um asset mix decisions so we run our portfolio on an economic basis uh, at about sixty five percent equities right. again that makes sense when your liabilities are elongated if you want to think about it uh, in a you know a, a good analogy is we're like a thirty year old mm-hmm. uh, who's investing in their RSP right. uh, for the first time and any financial advisor would say well you've got a long time until you retire uh, uh, try and have a Uh, high-weighting to to equities, maybe something close to 100% equities early in your career so that you can pick up that equity risk premium. As you get closer to retirement, let's say you're 60, um, it would make more sense for your personal portfolio to be heavily weighted to fixed income Mm -hmm. because you can't afford to have a loss. And that's really the difference at some level between the way that these these plans uh, are managed. It also affects even things like like currency uh, management. So, for example... For a bunch of reasons, Um, we don't hedge our foreign currency exposure for the most Mm -hmm. part. Uh, Guess what? When the Canadian dollar appreciates, it creates a a fairly material accounting loss for us. Um, But hedging is just a cost um, when your liabilities are elongated. So it's it's a complicated process, Mm -hmm. and each of these plans uh, makes decisions on those policy matters in a very, very different way. Uh, and yet people want to try and compare them, which makes no sense.
2: Right. And, and it's, it's dynamic. <clears throat> I mean, we thought we were 60-year-old, uh, and yet teachers keep living forever. <laughs> That's it. I mean, I have uh, I've got 107 members of our plan who are over 100 years old, and the oldest just turned 110 last week. And Hallmark does not make cards
1: (laughs) 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 for that age. age. They will soon. On that note, just in terms of some of the broader issues, Jim, I know you were recently in Davos. And what were some of those big picture issues that came out of those meetings that you will actually take, you you will specifically take into consideration this year?
2: Oh, Davos. Um, you know, first of all, you, you get you get flooded with uh, so much information, and whether it's the public sessions, the private sessions, the one-on-one sessions, and uh, et cetera. It takes uh, several days to kind of synthesize mm-hmm. um, it all. And I came away with sort of the overriding thing was th- there was a sense of optimism there. Mm-hmm. And so the real question is, is there too much optimism? Um, I came to the conclusion, and others did too, that... The optimism really centers around the fact that the four main uh, fears that we had going mm-hmm. into 2012 didn't materialize. Mm-hmm. You know, they were that uh, Israel was going to bomb uh, Iran. Uh, we were going to have um, a, 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 the Eurozone totally explode. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were going to have a double-dip recession in the United States, and that uh, China was going to have a hard-landing face plant, and uh, the, the growth <laughs> in the economy was over. And none of those four things happened. Um, And so, my conclusion is that the world in 2012 proved that it's a pretty good crisis manager. We know how to manage crisis and we're sort of going into 2013 pretty cocky saying, you know, come on, bring it on, bring on the next (laughs) crisis, I can handle it. Um, And yet, if you really look what happened in 2012, there wasn't a lot of progress against those issues that are underlying and that are the real issues. Mm -hmm. Um, Inequity, Mm -hmm. uh, youth unemployment, uh, education not uh, lining up with where jobs are, uh, violence against women, uh, lack of infrastructure, fiscal deficits. If you look at the countries who boast that they made progress on their fiscal side, they didn't really... What they did is they cut investment. They didn't really cut expenditure. Mm -hmm. And by cutting investment, they're not helping themselves for the future. So my concern is 2000, and I came away with this concern, that 2013 um, we're feeling pretty good, uh, but it may be a lost year because we're waiting for those crises so we can handle those, and we're not really turning our mind to the underlying issues. Um, the second point um, that I got was, and I did see some hope um, from the perspective of the private sector, some people coming to the conclusion that we can't leave everything to government to solve. Mm -hmm. Um, I heard uh, major corporations who have plants in a town where there's chronic, chronic unemployment or um, uh, education uh, is is bad, starting to say they've got to take on the responsibility. You can't just leave it to government. Government doesn't have the money. They don't have the intellectual uh, uh, capacity to do it and we as a corporation probably have some sort of responsibility. <laughs> now, that may be out of fear, um, but <laughs> anyway, whatever the motivation is, um, I, I saw that happening. And then the third thing that I saw was, you know, the, the specter that the United States becomes energy self-sufficient mm-hmm. is very real. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, that could that's a game changer. That's a seismic shift, mm-hmm. in certainly in my lifetime, Uh, But it has all sorts of implications. Uh, Sure, it's going to be good because the U.S. can bring their costs down. Uh, That's great. But, you know, we don't know the answer to fracking. I mean, they may be walking (laughs) around in eight feet of mud for the rest of their lives. Uh, We don't know what will happen in the Middle East when money gets cut off going into the Middle East. I mean, that's a tinderbox. What's going to happen there? So there's lots of questions, but it's clearly a seismic shift that we need to focus on.
1: That's fantastic. At least we have some sense there's crisis management. We won't look to the U.S. Congress for that kind of strategy. (laughs) Michael, um, um, you have made some great investments in European infrastructure over recent years, including HS1 uh, with uh, your friend Jim and teachers here, the U.K.'s only high-speed rail network. Will Europe continue to be a priority for your infrastructure investments, or will emerging markets also be a place where you're going to want to make some plays?
3: Well, first of all, I think that um, um, we're long in Canada, we're long in, uh, in, in North America. And I, first of all, let's get clear. I think our investments will remain pretty substantial in North America. Uh, but we can't, as I said earlier on, the office that we have in London is a European office. Right. We cannot ignore Europe. Europe is probably the largest economy, period, Europe well, is probably the largest economy. And uh, and we have made some good investments and very profitable investments in Europe, so it's certainly one that we have to pay attention to. Uh, The other thing, too, is I think I understand that the federal government is just about to uh, do a deal with Europe, Mm the European Union, which is the CETA, the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement. And my understanding is it's going to be much more beneficial than NAFTA to us because it's going to have some of the financial constraints removed, trade barriers removed. And for those developers and people out there looking to trade with Europe, I understand the procurement policies. I can be seriously relaxed. So there are opportunities <laughs> out there for you. So we see Europe as a very important market. And I think, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the, um, in terms of emerging markets, as I mentioned earlier on, that uh, um, uh, m- my personal belief is that the emerging markets become so big. That is not the trade between the developed markets and the EU and the, EU mar- and the emerging markets. It's between themselves. Mm-hmm. And the question we have to do is how do we enter that market? How do we enter that investment or trade value chain uh, given who we are
1: mm-hmm.
3: with the pension risk that we have and that sort of thing? One thing I can tell you from my bit of exposure, and I've been to some of the emerging countries, uh, uh, my, 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 uh, my view is that, Liberalisation in these economies is becoming faster and faster. Uh, than people will give it credit for. Uh, there are uh, top quartile managers making good returns in these in these markets, and I think to some extent we may have over overestimated the risk uh, in some of these in some of these markets. So um, we have to find a way uh, to get into that investment value chain, uh, uh, given given who we are and what we have, we are basically. Um, We have basically brought somebody in from Foreign Affairs uh, uh, in Ottawa on a two-year stint Mm -hmm. uh, to give us a profile on the emerging markets and give us an idea as to where, how we enter this value chain. Because at the end of the day, we may be actually looking in rather than being part of that value added chain
1: very interesting. And I,
3: by the way, I support as a plan member, mm-hmm. Jim and I, we're all plan members of Canada. Of course. Of the CPP. And we support your strategy of going out the net and, and looking after Hong Kong and,
4: and doing right. the other things that we need we're, to do. So congratulations.
1: Cheering. Everyone's cheering you know, for our... Mark. You know, I can say that one of
4: the differences between the plans is that we have 18 million Canadians <laughs>
1: one of whom is my mother. <laughs> That's exactly. The mo- so. A very important member. There's no doubt that she's anything like mine. And just now, we just we, it'll never be enough time today to really get an opportunity to hear everything we want from you, but just to kind of quickly round out the last few things we wanted to touch on was, Mark, before we move on to what lessons can we pass on to our our audience, just very quickly, you know, you've worked in some of the the key financial hubs in New York and Toronto and done business extensively internationally. How have capital and finance markets changed over the decade, and uh, what are some of those most remarkable uh, uh, developments that you've seen?
4: Well, I think the world is becoming more, more global, Danny. And, and uh, you know, it, when I started my career, it was really London and New York right. uh, was where all the action was and maybe to some extent uh, Tokyo for, for Asia. Um, but, but really today, uh, it's a multi-centred world. Right. And I think Toronto is part of that, in fact. I think Toronto, it, it, Toronto has changed tremendously in the 13 years since I moved back here. Uh, the amount that this city has changed. And just look around this world and how much global experience. Just look around this room and how much global experience there is uh, just in this room, uh, how many people here have either come from other countries or have had experience working in other places. So it's it's really the there is no longer a financial centre. Uh, it is still London, it is still New York, but it's also uh, Toronto and Beijing and Shanghai and Mumbai uh, and Sao Paulo and Santiago uh, and Singapore and Sydney, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now... I think that's a tremendous opportunity, Mm -hmm. but it's also a management challenge.
1: So like political power, you've seen economic power and capital power. I
4: think arguably the the economic power has has diffused far, far more quickly than political power has uh, around the world. And again, that's that's a management challenge. I mean, I don't think we would have thought about the necessity 10 or 15 years ago of organizations like ours uh, having to be, having, requiring, to have offices on a global basis to be successful. Today, it's table stakes, in my
1: view. Very interesting, and that's a great segue into our our last uh, theme, and hopefully we can deal with that uh, relatively quickly so we can get to some questions, which is really, on that note, what are some of the lessons that... uh, for other Canadians that want to do uh, more business or access international markets, and I'll start with you, Jim. Just a, a, a kind of a minute each on this, and then and then a minute each. We really do want to hear on what are the things at the end of the day that really are keeping you up at night. Just each of your perspectives, and then we'll get to questions. So, Jim, how can Canadian business best access these international markets and capital? Some people say we're too conservative in our business approach. Do you agree? Do you think we've missed a boat? What are some of the things that? Uh, uh, you think we can learn from your experience? No, I
2: don't think uh, we've missed the boat. Um, I think what's important is that you develop your own networks and relationships in uh, these various foreign jurisdictions. You've got to know who's doing what to whom and why right. and where, etc. cetera. Um, and the only way to do that is to be there. Uh, our experience when we moved into Brazil, for example, we took down... Uh, probably it was about a dozen of the most senior people, the teachers, for just less than two weeks. And we put them in there, and we met the, the uh, head of the bank, the minister of finance, the president's office, and we held cocktail parties every <laughs> evening for business people who came. And it was amazing. The first few cocktail parties, you got the you know hired guns came, <laughs> sure. and you know by about the third or fourth day, you started to get. The owners, the guys, have <laughs> really made things happen, right. and you start building those relationships, and it takes time. Right. Um, I, I can remember in a previous business uh, when we'd open a new office, and somebody say, "Well, what's you know, what's my quota? How much how right. much business do you want right. me to do in the first right. year?" And I'd say, "I don't care if you do anything <laughs> for the first year and a half, but build relationships. Um, you can't walk in there with the hubris of." Uh, <laughs> Of a North American saying, cocky, we know what to do, et cetera. It doesn't work.
1: You know, that's and
2: And you'll have your behind handed to you.
1: That's very encouraging because I remembered reading a quick note about Colgate-Palmolive. They wanted to test some product. They sent a team into a village in India that lived there for like three or four weeks just to get a feel for how people use the product. So it's great to know that Canadians like you are doing that. Fly in, fly out doesn't doesn't work. work. Uh, Michael. How have you gone about building global investments and partnerships, and what are some of the lessons that you can pass on to the rest of us, and what strategies and approaches have been the most effective out of the things you've tried?
3: Well, I mentioned earlier on the GS, the Global Street Investment Alliance. We only have a minute to go. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me go to the lessons learned, um, uh, and it goes to um, Mark's question of these plans are different. I think we tend to hedge all our exposures in the foreign markets. And we find a hedge We find that currency risk is probably the most important part that we have to face. Uh, there are certain things that uh, we tried in some countries to to hedge out, and it can cost you 200 to 400 basis points annually, and that's a big cost wow. when you're looking at things. So, Mark has the privilege of, as a Canadian, as a as a plan <laughs> member, I, I keep it on a hedge because it's a, it's a, eventually it'll come around. But we can't take that exposure based on our liability profile. Uh, the second thing I think we have learned is that. Um, Uh, uh, You have to be concerned with counterparty risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, mean, uh, a lot of people don't give the um, uh, the the, the due diligence to credit risk, which is your your counterparty risk. And the third thing I've learned is that um, liberalization Mm -hmm. in these uh, these countries is moving much faster because the EU, because of the IMF, because of the World Bank, all that stuff is available to them now. So what took us like 70 years to get to Canada on an mm-hmm. energy policy mm-hmm. will probably take these countries five years to get to on energy well, policy. It's interesting
1: you say that because the EU apparently in session talks with Turkey, they have tripled their GDP in the last decade. So there's a prime example of
3: and that. And the last thing I learned is that I, when I visit these countries, the, the level of education of the elite, many of them come from Oxford, Cambridge, mm-hmm. Harvard, and uh, they form a chain around the world that uh, we need to access, and we just don't have that. And that's one of the things that I've learned, the four four lessons I've learned
4: in looking at these opportunities.
1: Valuable. Thank you for sharing those. And Mark?
4: Yeah, last thing I would say just very quickly is uh, hire for global experience. Uh, all of these businesses are knowledge-based businesses, mm-hmm. um, and hiring people with global experience is critical to long-term success. Whether you're hiring into one of your uh, international offices or, or here at home, the way I like to say it is, uh, the person we don't want to hire anymore um, is the kid who went to York Mills Collegiate, uh, uh, you know, s- studied at York. Um, sorry, Pat went to work for TD Bank. Um, and, 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 who thinks, and who thinks that the Far East is Oshawa. Okay? Um, that's, that's, that's not the individual we're looking
1: for. So we'll make and, a note of all those. The Far East is not Oshawa. But, but what we're looking for, what we're looking
4: for, Uh, What we're looking for is Canadians or others who are truly global citizens. And there's a huge advantage. I talked about it earlier, but there's a huge advantage we have in Canada and a huge advantage we have here in Toronto of being able to hire people that have language skills, that have studied, lived, worked uh, in foreign jurisdictions. And those individuals actually get us uh, ahead of the game, uh, right out of the the gate. Uh, I was in Columbia uh, in, um, in January, and you know, lo and behold, uh, we have a young woman who works for us, uh, who emigrated to Canada seven or eight years ago uh, from from Colombia, is is Colombian educated and Canadian educated, and her ability to give us insight uh, into what's happening in the Columbia market. If we had to hire advisors, if we had to hire advisors to get that same insight, it would take us years and hundreds of thousands of dollars in cost. But we had it sitting right here. Uh, in, in, in Toronto. And in fact, I found out we have four Colombians wow. uh, working at CPPIB. And so that's a huge asset that many of us in this room have inside our organizations. We have to hire for that and we have to tap into that expertise and that's going to give Canadians and Torontonians in particular Uh, a big leg up as the world becomes more global. That's
1: great. Okay, 15 seconds each, and then we're gonna go to some of our questions. Just, Jim, I know this is a speed round now, but there's no prize at the end of it, other than you get relieved of me asking you questions. Quickly, what's the most most troubling thing or the most important thing that keeps you up at night these days?
2: Oh, the liability side. Um, Mm -hmm. Clearly, we can, you know, we've got a a proven team, proven year after year on the asset management side. Mm -hmm. They are fantastic, second to none in the world. It's that liability side and the evolution of the old-style defined benefit plan to the new-style hybrid plan, which is sustainable for the future. Michael.
3: Politicians.
2: <laughs> 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 Who refused Who, to make what, the right, right decisions? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, Mark.
4: I sleep pretty well most nights. Um, (laughs) It's the benefit of having long-term liabilities. Uh, Look, I I think that there's... I I think the global economy is still uh, on tenterhooks. Uh, I think Europe in particular uh, continues to be problematic. I echo uh, many of the comments that Jim made earlier about uh, um, a failure of um, global economic leaders to really address uh, the fundamental problems. And we keep kicking the can... Uh, down the road, and at some point, we're not going to be able to kick it any further, and I don't think we've made much progress uh, in that regard.
1: No time for uh, another question? No <laughs> how about one, quick, just because this is a really important one, and I know you've all, done, you've all done different things on this front, but innovation in Canada and the role that your institutions and your organizations and your experience can play in that, just uh, maybe, uh, again, 15 seconds from each of you on how you see your role in that uh, in that' in that
2: uh, strategy for Canada if you're talking about uh, venture capital mm-hmm. we were one of the biggest investors in venture capital in Canada um, and we have slowly pulled back um, our uh, our investment results have not been good mm-hmm. and in fact the investment results of venture capital around the world have not been good mm-hmm. for many years um, so somehow um, that whole industry needs a rethink um, and uh, we'll wait to see if models change. But the current models don't seem to work.
3: Michael? I think it requires a longer discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, to <laughs> okay. uh, we, uh, we can part decide. Part two,
1: then, you're promising. To we, part we can two. decide to become a
3: nation of donut, uh, donut shops at the, uh, at the corner, or we can uh, decide to innovate. The I think it requires, a longer, it requires a longer discussion. Yeah,
1: But wow. I know you've done something with your yeah. ventures group, Michael, we so had. I know you're being very yeah. modest. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark.
4: Yeah, we, like teachers, uh, have been and continue to be a big investor in Canadian private equity and Canadian uh, venture capital through partnerships that we have. Um, uh, What I would say is our job at CPPIB is to maximize the return for those 18 million uh, beneficiaries without undue risk of loss. Uh, We don't have a public policy role. Um, If it makes sense uh, for us to invest in Canadian innovation because we can make an appropriate risk-weighted return, uh, we will do that, and we're happy uh, to do it. Uh, but for us, it's all about maximizing the return for our beneficiaries, and we leave the policymaking decisions to policymakers, thankfully. Uh, but it's a tough set of, as Jim, as Jim alludes to, and I think as Michael alludes to, there's a tough set of policy issues around this in Canada. Right. Um, I think there's some movement being made with the recent announcements uh, uh, coming out of the uh, uh, finance ministry in terms of uh, uh, more funding for, for venture capital in this, uh, in this country. But the reality is uh, we do have to bridge that productivity gap. We do have to bridge the innovation gap. Um, And uh, I think uh, uh, it's a big challenge for the country
1: overall. Wonderful. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Greatly appreciated. Thank you.
3: Jim, Michael, and Mark, on the club's behalf, I would like to thank each of you for an open and honest discussion about the ins and outs of international investing. About a year ago, The Economist referring to a group of investors described them as owning assets all over the world, winning the attention of both Wall Street firms and institutional investors, and how such firms aspired to be like them. It was referring to none other than our own Canadian pension funds. It noted that it wasn't the size of the funds that marks them out, but their intriguing approach to investing. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and insights on your approaches to investing. We wish you continued success as you make your mark on the world on behalf of all Canadians. And thank you again for joining us, and may all your investments be rewarding ones.
0: Thank you. That was great. Thank you you again, everybody. All I'm going to say is Mark Carney will be mad if everyone's not at their desk by nine. So thank you all very much for coming today. Thank you to Rogers Television, Ernst & Young, Tories. Good day.